Well, then will you join me as we have prayer once again? Father in heaven, oh, that self may be fully surrendered, that the testimony of our lives may truly, fully, and always be not I, but Christ. Send now thy spirit to speak to us plainly, clearly, distinctly, that even the children can understand how to reconcile with God. Speak to our hearts. Make plain the testimony of your word. Convert us and transform us. For we ask this in the worthy name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Anatomy of true confession. You know, I didn't grow up a Christian. I didn't grow up studying the word of God. And therefore... For me, when I did wrong, my mom was very earnest on making that a point that I was to make right my wrongs. I remember one time I got in trouble with a third party. In fact, I was asked by my mother to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And that was my confession. Well, these people only knew if you could put all the information of what was really the evidence, they knew A. And I explained to them from A all the way to Z and made sure I crossed my T's and dotted my I that when I finished, it was clear my confession. And yet, bless my mother's heart, she passed this year. The lesson that she had me to learn through that experience, she wanted me to learn deeply. Why? Because she taught me better. I knew better. Did I have the word of God? No. But did my mother instill principles of right and wrong to define What was morally correct in some aspects of life and what was not? Yes. And when that came to be, my mother wanted to make sure that she never found me in a situation like this ever again. Did my mother forgive me? Yes. Did the third party forgive me? Yes. They said he has fully cooperated with us We will just let him go. My mother said no. And she took it to another level. And when brought before that next level, she asked for the maximum discipline because she didn't want to ever see me in that situation again. And here I am, I'm not a Christian. I'm not familiar with the Word of God, but I knew something of my mother's character. I knew my mother really loved me. And so because I knew my mother really loved me, and she had taught me better, and I had hurt her heart 
for what she had taught me of values in life, of how to treat others, I realized I made a grave mistake. And even though at that time my mother was asking for the maximum discipline that I could receive, even though internally the whisper of the the evil angel was saying, your mother doesn't really care about you, does she? The voice of my distinct conscience, knowing my mother's actions and her fruits of really deeply caring for me, even though in my conscience there was a wrestling deep in my personal being, I knew what my mother was asking was right and just. And I knew it was because she loved me. You know, I used to use a phrase, tough love, when describing my mother at times. And that was kind of the climax of an event that <laughs> clearly defined that, that coined term. And so I look at things and I reflect, I never resented my mother for doing that. I never had any bitterness in my heart for that. In fact, while I had some time to think about my actions prior to that, I was actually asking for a Bible. Funny in situations of never knowing God, yet knowing somehow back in the recesses of our mind where we can find some real truth and answers. Something to meet the soul when we really need it most. And I realized through that situation by God's grace, guess what? That situation never crossed my mind to even consider doing that situation again in my life. Confession, yes. Repentance comes along. Confession is being truthful and honest with yourself, with God, and with others. Repentance means now that I recognize the wrong and confess what is right and what is wrong, I'm turning away from that which I've been doing wrong to never, by God's grace, do it again. Repentance is a turning away from sin in the heart. I never wanted to see my mother suffer and be so sad and disappointed in me ever again like I saw that day. How much more Jesus. And this is the whole fundamental principle that God's trying to reach for true confession and repentance is love. Love that works by faith. That's what purifies our souls. It was me trusting in my mother's love that she knew and had my best interest that I surrendered to the circumstances and consequences. And so the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs chapter 28, Proverbs chapter 28 and verse 13, the Bible says, He that covereth his sins shall not prosper. But whoso confesseth and forsaketh them, what shall he obtain? What shall she obtain? What will the little child obtain? Mercy. There's a lesson of its simplicity that God is trying to teach us. But unfortunately, because of our human nature, we fight and kick against the pricks. We resist and we resist. And that's what I want to go through and understand 
the conflict. So many today, because they really don't trust mom and dad that they have their best interest, they don't trust God that he has your best interest or your best interest, you go through and we doubt when we are called upon to give answer for the things that we have done wrong and be held accountable to confess and say, truth, I was wrong. And to recognize that and to turn away from it. Because we want to hold on and we want to be right and we want to do what we want to do. Bottom line, we want to be in charge and in control. The Bible says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep, what have we done? We've gone astray. Each one of us have done what? We've turned to our own way. And that is the iniquity that was laid upon Jesus. The iniquity that all of us have come short of the glory of God are revealing His character and have wanted to go our own way, do our own thing, be in charge of our own lives, our own decisions. I don't want anybody over me telling me what to do. And don't you dare put somebody who's inferior to me in every way, shape, and form over me. Because I know what's best. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. But the question is asked, who can know that? And so I ask you today, who can really know the desperateness and the deceptiveness of the carnal heart? Only God. And therefore, if we resist the very medium which God uses to convict us, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, as John chapter, eight, John chapter 16, verse 8 says, the Holy Spirit, His purpose as the Comforter is to convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin to declare and define to us, this is not appropriate, it is not right, it is morally wrong. It doesn't represent God's character. Of righteousness of that which is truth, right, pure, correct, that is representative of his character. And judgment, the discernment to be, to be able to discern between the two, to realize from cause to effect and to see clearly what God is trying to help us to see. Because as Amazing Grace says, I once was what? I once was what? Yes, I was lost, but I was in my lost condition. I was? I was blind. But now I what? What was it that God uses to help us to see spiritually? The true discerning point of our situation and our need. It's His amazing grace. That amazing grace is defined that God demonstrated His love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. The first chapter of Steps to Christ is what? God's love for man. When we understand that Christ treats us better than we deserve, that's grace. When He died for us while we are yet sinners, when we wanted nothing to do with Him, when we were in the depths of our sin and didn't know how to get out, that's when He demonstrated His love toward us. 
When we're in darkness and blindness, in the depths of wickedness and rebellion and sin and iniquity, that's when he demonstrated, this is who I am. I am love, and I love you despite what you have done or the wrong view that you have of me or the wrong concepts or principles you choose to live by. Because that's who God is. But God is so loving that the purpose of revealing to us His goodness, as it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, it is the goodness of God that leads us to what? To repentance. Or despisest thou the riches of His goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? Why is God so long-suffering with us? Why is He so forbearing with us in our wickedness and rebellion? Because it is His long-suffering and goodness and forbearance That's who He is. And in being patient with us, even David said, Lord, Thy gentleness hath made me great. In God being gentle even to David, was he led to repentance? But did David really see his true situation of the depth of the wickedness of the sin which he had committed? No, he did not. I'm going to ask you something. Do you think when he slept with Bathsheba that he understood that what he was doing was wrong? Yes or no? Okay. So you're saying that the Holy Spirit was convicting him before and during the act that this was not right. So just like David, you and I, in order to commit something, we have to dismiss the convicting spirit of the voice of God of conscience to our mind. So then he goes forward and fulfills the sin, not just in thought, but in action. And we'll get to the separation of that later. And then you go through and identify the details of what happened with him He continued for such a time that there was consequences because of his sin, and there became pregnancy. He tried to call the husband, Uriah, from the battlefield and try to have him lie down with his wife, Bathsheba. He was a faithful soldier, and he said, how can I do this when the rest of the men are out fighting? I cannot. My conscience does not allow me to do that. He was. And so God purified his heart of his own personal convictions, Uriah. He did not allow a way of escape for David's sin to be covered and hid so easily. He put conviction in, by the Holy Spirit in Uriah's heart. He never went home to see his wife. And finally, David seeing that he would never go home until he was given back to the battle, he sent a letter, and that letter was the very letter of a death, of basically his death sentence. The very letter he led back to Joab. And he was put in the heat of the battle, and he was killed, because that's what David asked in the letter of Joab. And Uriah died. So now we're putting one sin, then you try to cover up another sin, with a lie or deception, and then you go, and then it gets worse, and then you just keep covering it up to where finally he had been guilty of murder, planned deception and fraud, even though it wasn't entirely carried out, 
And then finally, the third point, murder. And David, on this in his conscience, kept sweeping away the conviction of the still small voice of the Holy Spirit because he was plainly understanding nobody knows. Until one day the prophet Nathaniel came and shared with him a story about a ewe lamb and the treatment that that owner dealt with that ewe lamb. It wasn't even his own. It was his neighbor's. And David proclaimed, that man should restore fourfold. And Nathaniel, with clearness of heart, said, thou art the man. Do you think it was easy for Nathaniel to say that? He had the fear of God more than the fear of man. He bowed before the great Almighty in his own life. Therefore, it was not easy. It was a simple thing for him to speak because he knew greater is he who made him than he who is before him. And so he spoke the word. In Psalm 51, we find that David fully confessed and, and, Repented. Turn your Bible to the book of Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is the anatomy of a true heartfelt confession and repentance. He begins in verse 1 Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies. Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, and cleanse me from what? My sin, for I acknowledge my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward parts, And in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. There was a brokenness of heart. Hide thy face from my sins and blot out all mine iniquities. And the cry of his heart was, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Do you think murder, fraud, and adultery were things of a right spirit? Over right thoughts? David recognized he needed to be washed and cleansed and made new. He needed to be born again. He says, Cast me not away from thy presence and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. Then I will teach transgressors thy ways and sinners shall be converted unto thee. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, 
Thou, God of my salvation, and my tongue shall sing aloud of thy righteousness. O Lord, open thou my lips, and my mouth shall show forth thy praise. For thou desirest not sacrifice, else would I give it. Thou delightest not in burnt offering. What is it that the Lord delights? What is the true sacrifice he's looking from us? Sacrifices of God are of a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. This is what God is looking for. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. You mourn because you see what your sin has done to the Savior. We come to understand the conditions of obtaining mercy of God are simple and just and reasonable. The Lord does not require us to do some grievous thing in order that we may have forgiveness of sin. We need not make long and wearisome pilgrimage, pilgrimages or perform painful penance such as Martin Luther and many others to commend our souls to the God of heaven or to expiate our transgression. But he that confesseth and forsaketh his sin shall have mercy. This is a precious promise given to fallen man to encourage him to trust in the God of love and to seek for eternal life in his kingdom. Notice the two points. To seek, to trust in the God of love and to seek for eternal life in his kingdom. When we come to understand what God is asking of us of the conditions, they are very simple, just, and reasonable. An example you find in the book of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, beginning with verse 4. Daniel not only begins to pray, but he prays of why his people have been under the result of the curse of God. Captivity. Others to rule over them instead of the God of heaven as it was once before. They have heathen rulers now. They're brought in at pagan circumstances of a nation conquering them. They're humiliated, shamed, belittled, and brought to nothing to see their great sin and to turn to heaven to repent. And it was about the 70 years of the time frame which captivity had come to a close and Daniel was looking and wondering, God, when are you going to fulfill your promise to restore that we can go back to Jerusalem? And verse 4 says, And I prayed unto the Lord God, the Lord my God, and made my what? Now listen to the confession of Daniel. And said, O Lord, the great and dreadful God, keeping the covenant and mercy to them that love him and to them that keep his commandments. Notice he begins his prayer. This is my confession. I confess that you are loving, you are faithful, and you are just. Notice what he describes of God. In his prayer, he is vindicating God's character in defining that the guilt and shame is not upon God. 
for he has been just. And then he puts the ownership where it belongs, verse 5. We have sinned and have committed iniquity and have done wickedly and have rebelled even by departing from thy precepts and from thy judgments. Neither have we hearkened unto thy servants, the prophets, which spake in thy name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to our people of the land. O Lord, righteousness belongeth unto thee, but unto us confusion of faces. As at this day to the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and unto all Israel that are near and that are far off, though all the countries whither thou hast driven them, because of their trespass, that they have trespassed against thee. Verse 8. O Lord, to us belongeth confusion of face to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers. It's the leadership he's identifying. Because why? Because we have sinned against thee. He understood where the the fault lied. Daniel did not seek to excuse himself or his people before God. But in humility and contrition of soul, he confessed the full extent and demerit of their transgressions and vindicated God's dealings as just toward a nation that had set at naught his requirements and would not profit by his entreaties. God was justified by his servant, Daniel. There is a great need today of just such sincere, heartfelt repentance and confession. Those who have not humbled their souls before God and acknowledging their guilt have not yet fulfilled the first condition of acceptance. If we have not experienced that repentance which is not to be repented of and have not confessed our sin with true humiliation of soul and brokenness of spirit, abhorring our iniquity, we have never sought truly for the forgiveness of sin. And if we have never sought, we have never found the peace of God. The only reason why we may not have remission of sins that are past is that we are not willing to humble our proud hearts and comply with the conditions of the word of truth. There is explicit instruction given concerning this matter. Confession of sin, whether public or private, should be heartfelt and freely expressed. Heartfelt and freely expressed. It is not to be urged from the sinner. It is not to be made in a flippant and careless way or forced from those who have no realizing sense of the abhorrent character of sin. The confession that is mingled with tears and sorrow, that is the outpouring of the inmost soul, finds its way to the God of infinite pity. Says the psalmist, The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. 
There are examples in the Bible of confessions that were not true. Pharaoh is one of them. Too many confessions like that of Pharaoh when he was suffering the judgments of God. He acknowledged his sin in order to escape further punishment, but returned to his defiance of heaven as soon as the plagues were stayed. There are those that for a moment will mention because of the consequences of sin, because of the judgments that are called to come upon them, they will repent or seek confession. But this is not true confession and true repentance. This is simply trying to avoid punishment. How many of you, when you were children and you knew discipline was coming and all of a sudden the apologies come flying out of the mouth just voluntarily right because you see the instruments that are on their way to execute the judgment in righteousness and it is coming keenly to your mind in remembrance of those moments in history right I know it has for me And all of a sudden, mom, mom, oh, wait, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's too late. The confession and repentance because of trying to advert the discipline or judgment is too late. Too late in the sense to avoid the consequences. Had it been genuine, immediate, upfront, immediate, voluntarily, when the situation Nine out of ten times, there would have been no consequences, many times. Just think of David. If after the situation with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba came and said, I am pregnant with child. If he had openly confessed his sin at that point voluntarily, realizing, God, I have made a grave mistake. I have wounded the heart of one of my best soldiers in betraying his trust with his wife. I, as king, have betrayed my trust in my um, role of responsibility as king and taking part in asking of something that I should have never asked for. Do you think that his consequences would have been different? Do you think it would have set a stage publicly when he came and acknowledged his sin and publicly defined and asked for forgiveness and recognized it? Do you think that would have changed the whole scenario for Israel to let them know that the king is not exempt from being held accountable. That all must answer before the judgment seat of Christ and are judged by the same law of liberty and truth and righteousness. And it would have established righteousness in his kingdom even though he committed the grave act of sin of adultery. He would have restored that moral integrity in the lives of the people by standing up and acknowledging and not palliating or excusing or putting blame on whoever, whatever, but saying, I have sinned before God and before my servant. Things would have been different. Balaam's confession was of a similar character. Terrified by the angel standing in the pathway with drawn sword, He acknowledged his guilt, 
lest he should lose his life, there was no genuine repentance for sin. No contrition, no conversion of purpose, no abhorrence of evil, and no worth or virtue in his confession. Now I'm quoting Spirit of Prophecy, just so you know this is not my words of interpretation on the situation. So what we're looking at is God's analogy on Balaam's confession that it was of a similar character of that of Pharaoh, just pleading mercy for the consequences because he was found out. Shame on me. Right? I got caught. If Achan, when they went and lost the battle and lost soldiers and realized that there is sin in the camp, and these are the consequences. Had he voluntarily come and brought his Babylonian garments, right? And brought the things in the gold, and brought it before, and put it before Moses and the leaders, and said, I have sinned against God. Do you think his consequences upon him, or at least for his family, would have been different? But unfortunately, he resisted, even knowing that lots would be cast, and it came down to the tribe, and then the family, and then finally this distinct person, and that, every time, dwindled down. He had time and time, over and over, to respond to the voice of the Holy Spirit to repent. But he resisted that so much to where he finally justified It's not going to come to me. There's no way that they're going to find me out. And when it came specifically to him, not just him, but he and his whole family were then brought under the curse of God and were killed. Brethren, it is a solemn understanding to play with the voice of the Holy Spirit leading you and I to repentance. It is the one sin that cannot be forgiven. It is called the unpardonable sin. And that is the consistent and persistent refusal to repent while the Holy Spirit convicts you. Judas Iscariot, after betraying his Lord, returned to the priest exclaiming, I have sinned in that I have betrayed the innocent blood. But his confession was not of such a character as would commend him to the mercy of God. It was forced from his guilty soul by an awful sense of condemnation and a fearful looking for of judgment. The consequences that were to result to him drew forth this acknowledgement of his sin. There was no deep, heartbreaking grief in his soul that he had delivered the Son of of God to be mocked, scourged, and crucified. That he had betrayed the Holy One of Israel into the hands of wicked and unscrupulous men. He confessed, his confession was only prompted by a selfish and darkened heart. What were his hidden sins? Selfish and darkened heart. 
like constantly surmising evil. Is it our nature after the fall of Adam and Eve to say, Lord, I messed up. I take full blame. I'm guilty. It is I, Lord, it is I. Adam and Eve had partaken of the forbidden fruit. They were filled with a sense of shame and terror. At their only thought was how to excuse their sin before God and escape the dreaded sentence of death. Man, that sounds like just the thing today. How we can excuse our sin before God and escape the dreaded sentence, whatever that is. When the Lord inquired concerning their sin, Adam replied, laying the guilt partly upon God and partly upon his companion, Eve. The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. And the woman put the blame upon the serpent, saying, the serpent beguiled me and I did eat. Why did you make the serpent? Why did you suffer him to come into Eden? These were the questions implied in her excuse for her sin, thus charging God with the responsibility of their fall. When you get angry and irritated, do you blame God? When you commit sin in your mind of adultery, of murder, do you blame God? Lord, that woman should have never been like that. She should have had more clothes on. Lord, that man needs to wear some loose clothing. Because that's just a little too tight. So we start putting the blame on who? On others. The spirit of self-justification originated in the father of lies and has been exhibited by all the sons and daughters of Adam. That means you and I are guilty of this as well. The spirit of self-justification. Confessions of this order are not inspired by the divine spirit and will not be acceptable before God. True repentance will lead a man to bear his guilt himself and acknowledge it without deception or hypocrisy. Like the poor publican lifting up so much as his eyes into heaven, he will smite upon his breast and cry, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And those who do acknowledge their guilt will be justified. What will they be? They will be justified, for Jesus will plead his blood in behalf of the repentant soul. It is no degradation for man to bow down before his maker and confess his sins and plead for forgiveness through the merits of a crucified and risen Savior. It is noble to acknowledge your wrong before him whom you have wounded by transgression and rebellion. It lifts you up before men and angels. For he that humbleth himself, God said in due time, you will be exalted. The Bible clearly indicates who we are to confess our sins to. The Bible says, confess your sins to who?
The Bible indicates we are to confess our sins to God. Turn your Bible to the book of James chapter 5. There is too much silence in that answer, brethren. And that makes me nervous. James chapter 5, because uh, we don't have any high priest here and no confessional boxes. James chapter 5, verse 16 says, Confess your faults one to another, and pray one for another, that ye may be healed. Right? Okay. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availed much. So the Bible clearly identifies, confess your what? Faults to who? One another. Does it say confess your sins? Okay, I just want to make sure we're clear and on the same page. It is written. We confess our faults one to another. We confess our sins to God. Confess your sins to God, who only can forgive them, and your faults to one another. If you have given offense to your friend or neighbor, you, have, you are to acknowledge your wrong, and it is your, his duty freely to forgive you. So, it's a twofold duty. One, us acknowledging our wrong, and the other, what does it say? Freely to forgive us. Then you are to seek the forgiveness of who? Of God, because the brother whom you wounded is the property of God. And in injuring him, you sinned against his creator and redeemer. Okay? So if I go and do something against my wife, not something grievous, but even something inconsiderate, and I go, dear, forgive me for what I said or what I didn't follow through with or what I didn't accomplish that I said I was going to, specifically confessing the specific point, right? Where I failed. And then I go to God and say, Lord, forgive me for not being faithful as I should have been. Help me to do better work and be faithful in my life. Do you see the contrast? One, I acknowledge with the person. And then I go and take that whom I have offended. Forgive me for offending my wife in that, Lord, and help to heal our bind, our marriage, and restore and cleanse. And help us, help me to be more responsible in the commitments I make to her. Do you see? True repentance is not just looking for, I made a mistake. It's looking to God for the solution to not do it again. Does that make sense? The whole purpose is to acknowledge that was wrong. Lord, help me not to repeat that again. Now, if our brother or sister repeats it again, we are to what? Forgive them from our hearts. How many times? The Bible says only 490 times. So, you do what you want to do, right? With the 491st time. But I think after 490 times, you're going to develop a habit. Cultivated, right? That starts automatically reflecting the character of God in your actions and attitude towards others. 
We can forgive others and should even before they ask for forgiveness to us. We should forgive them from our heart. Jesus left us that example at the cross when he said, Father, forgive them because they know not what they do. There's a lot of people that have done a lot of wrongs and have offended. And for us to freely offer forgiveness to them and say, Father, forgive them and grant that spirit of forgiveness in my heart that I would forgive them from my heart. Now, does that mean just because I've forgiven them that there is no responsibility on their part? No. True confession is always of a specific character. What does it look like? It acknowledges particular sins. They may be of such a nature as only to be brought before God. Like if you've done something that in your secret, quiet, personal time, and you know you've done wrong, and you confess that before God, that's between you and God. They may be wrongs that should be confessed before individuals who have suffered injury through them. If others have been affected by them, then you should go and make that right. Or they may be of a general kind that should be made known in the congregation of the people. But all confession should be definite and to the point, acknowledging the very sins of which you are guilty. If I go and tell my wife, Dear, forgive me for not being a good husband. Well, that sounds nice, right? That sounds nice. But that's over, broad, general. Now it could say, I, dear, have not been a loving and compassionate and attentive husband as I should have. Now what am I acknowledging? For, would you forgive me for not being that to you? Now I'm acknowledging the specific points of where I have failed and come short of the glory of God in my relationship with my wife. Do you understand the difference now? So the first one, forgive me for, fail- for not being a good husband. I'm sorry, gentlemen, but that ain't going to cut it. You got to do better than that. And wives, don't think you can get off saying, dear, forgive me for not being the good wife. It goes two ways, right? And children, uh uh-uh. Forgive me for not being a good child or a good son or daughter. You need to follow up with that, with the specific things of what you are conscientiously about that you have done that you know that has offended and not been right. Does that make sense? And be honest with you, it's, it's this, the lack of this, that causes most conflicts and contentions in the home. And if that's in the home, it's going to overflow where? In the church. And if it overflows in the church, it's going to overflow in our work environments. And therefore, it's going to overflow in every place that we go because we have not learned the simple principle to be applied. You know... There's a lot of situations of examples for us to learn from. Balaam. Do you think Balaam was true and honest? No, when Israel was oppressed by the Amorites, the chosen people made a plea before God that illustrates the definite character of true confession. And the children of Israel, quote, 
cried unto the Lord, saying, We have sinned against thee, both because we have forsaken our God and also served Balaam. Notice the confession that they specifically identified. We have forsaken our God, you Lord, and we have served Balaam. Their confession was direct, simple, to the point. A child can grasp that concept. Mommy, forgive me for not being obedient and listening to you when you asked me to do that the first time. And the Lord said unto the children of Israel, Did not I deliver you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, from the children of Ammon and from the Philistines? Notice the Lord responds. Yet ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I deliver you no more. Now I just want to pause there for a moment. Was their confession to the point? Was it true confession? Were they specific? Does that mean God didn't talk about it anymore? God brought up the distinct points of agreeing of where on those points of confession, where specifically they had failed to make clear to them he was fully aware and to let them be fully aware of it too. Just because you confess does not mean that there is not room for the other individuals that have been affected to make plain to you the specifics that have confirmed your confession. says, ye have forsaken me and served other gods, wherefore I deliver you no more. Go and cry unto the gods which ye have chosen. Let them deliver you in the time of your tribulation. And the children of Israel said unto the Lord, we have sinned. And I want you to listen to the next point. There's a reason that God said what he said to them. Go and serve the other gods then since you've rejected me. We have sinned. Do thou unto us whatsoever seemeth good unto thee. Deliver us only, we pray thee, this day. They, then they began to act in harmony with their confessions and prayers. What did they do? They put away the strange gods from among them. And served the Lord, and the Lord's great heart of love was grieved, was grieved for the misery of Israel. Do you understand the context here? Their confession was on a certain level. So when God came back to them and let them know, look, since you've chosen other gods, why don't you continue to serve them? Why? Because in their first confession, they didn't bring their gods and idols and set them before to be destroyed and and surrendered. They continued to hold on to their idols while they made a confession, we did wrong. So they acknowledged the points, they were aware of it, but they did not openly put the sin away yet. There was confession, but not repentance. They acknowledged the points, but there was no turning away and putting it aside and separating it from it. And so true confession is led by true, followed by true repentance. 
In other words, there is action taking to put away the sin or whatever it is that you are guilty or has contaminated the soul. I mean, if you've been looking at pornography, you don't keep that available. If you've been taking alcohol and drugs, you don't keep that in your house and in your home and in your car and in your person. You make a decision, you say no more, and you flush it down the toilet or throw it away or get rid of it. You set it aside. I remember when I first became a Christian, an Adventist. God said, I'm a jealous God. And I, th- that interpretation, I want your full attention. When, you, when He says, seek me with all your heart, I shall be found. And I said, okay, Lord. I had a TV. I put it in the dumpster. I know for a lot of you, that sounds like fanaticism. I grew up with the television being my babysitter many times. And it was destroying my time and soul of things that were spiritual and whole and pure and healthy. So I threw it out. I was involved in music and a lot of dance competitions and dance clubs. I know you, I don't look like that today. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Amen. Just goes to show, yeah, some of you are still laughing like, I can't believe that, was, that used to be Chris. The change that God brought up on my heart, I threw those away. Because it wasn't music that led me to a clear knowledge and understanding of God or led me to an atmosphere that seemed like purity of heaven. The things that they sung, sang about, the rhythm that they played was just debasing and more immoral. Feeding the appetite of the flesh and carnal man. And different things in my life that I started putting away, books that I knew just were not Correct. And you go and share this with others today and they say, man, you're an extreme fanatic. I said, no, I have found that God really does love my soul. And it is his love that has captivated my heart that I'd rather purity than defilement. I'd rather the things of heaven than the things of this world. Because I become a new creature in Christ Old things are passed away. Behold, all things, he says, become new. There's a true conversion when we surrender all. There's a peace that the world can never give you. When you stop fighting to serve self, to defend self, there's a peace that nobody can take from you. Because it's who you are. It's what you possess in Christ. It becomes your true identity. And the devil tried us to distract us with so many other things of life that we don't take time at the feet of Savior. It is at the feet of Jesus beholding him that we become like him. But we're beholding the sports entertainment and the spirit of competition 
knowingly or unknowingly actually becomes a secondary spirit in our nature of the way we deal with others. And that is not of God. The spirit of competition arose with Lucifer competing for the throne of God in heaven. And the whole spirit of that Christ is trying to develop in us is something that is of a heavenly nature. It is not of this world. And the confession is, Lord, I have not been like I should have been with you. We were reading Days of Conflict in Desire of Ages this week for worship. There came a point when it was talking about Jesus that said, if he had at one moment a word or a countenance of impatience and irritation, he would have not been the perfect sacrifice that the law required. It spoke loud to me. We've all come short of the glory of God. We all need to come and weep at the feet of Jesus. Not only does he give us hope that his perfect life is what he offers to us for victory, but it's an example of what he desires to fulfill in us in our real personal experience with him that our countenance and words would not reflect that of impatience and irritability. Brethren, there's only a window of opportunity left that our great high priest intercedes to receive the confession and repentance on behalf of you and I. Confession will not be acceptable to God without sincere repentance and reformation. There must be decided changes in the life. Everything offensive to God must be put away. This will be the result of genuine sorrow for sin. Paul, when he spoke of the work of repentance, and this is 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 9 and 10. He says, Ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Notice a repentance that has a sorrow. What's the sorrow? It's the sorrow of sin. When you go back and read every time we sin in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 6, the Bible identifies what happens to Christ. If ye have fallen away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Are you really wanting Christ to continue to suffer Christ bears our sin and guilt and shame as our great high priest so that we don't have to. 
He ever lives to make intercession for us. But every time we choose to openly, clearly, defiantly sin against God, we are crucifying Him afresh. You know, in the days of Samuel, they asked for a king, right? The Israelites wandered from God. They were suffering the consequences of sin. They had lost their faith in God, lost their discernment of His power and wisdom to rule the nation, lost their confidence in His ability to defend and vindicate His cause. They turned from their great ruler of the universe and desired to be governed as were the nations around them. Before they found peace, they made this definite confession. We have added unto all our sins this evil to ask us a king. The very sin of which they were convicted had to be confessed. Their ingratitude oppressed their souls and severed them from God. I don't want to be severed from God. Is that really... None of us want to be severed from God. So what do we do? What happens when we have sinned and our senses have become so deadened, so hardened, so resistant to the Spirit of God that we we don't even see it as evil anymore? When sin has deadened the moral perceptions, the wrongdoer does not discern the defects of his character nor realize the enormity of the evil he has committed. I want you to listen. Those that have been blinded by sin, they just don't get it. They don't see it. So you talk over and over and over and over and over again on the same points of facts and truth, and they don't see it. And unless he yields to the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, he remains in partial blindness to his sin. His confessions are not sincere and in earnest. To every acknowledgement of his guilt, he adds an apology in excuse of his course, declaring that if it had not been for certain circumstances, he would not have done this or that which he is reproved. But the examples in God's word of genuine repentance and humiliation reveal a spirit of confession in which there is no excuse for sin or attempt at self-justification. Paul did not seek to shield himself. He paints his sin in its darkest hue, not attempting to lessen his guilt. He says, Many of the saints that I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests, and when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them off in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. He does not hesitate to declare 
that Christ came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. This is the true spirit of humility. The humble and broken heart, subdued by genuine repentance, will appreciate something of the love of God and of the cost of Calvary. And as a son confesses to a loving father, so will the truly penitent bring all his sins before God. And it is written, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I want to leave with one thought. Some people have said, yeah, but what about the things I don't know about? I want to clear up that matter before we depart today. The Bible says, to him to know it, to do good, and do it to not, it is sin. If you know what something that you should have done or could have done that would have been appropriate or right and chose not to do it, that is sin. The people of God must move understandingly. They should not be satisfied until every known sin is confessed. Then, and only then, It is their privilege and duty to believe that Jesus accepts them. The law of God takes note of the jealousy, envy, hatred, malignity, revenge, lust, and ambition that surge through the soul but have not found expression in outward action because the opportunity, not the will, has been wanting. All these sinful emotions will be brought into account in the day when God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. So when you've been thinking evil and devising it, but there just was not an opportunity to put it in practice or action, you are found guilty before God as if you had already committed the action. That's why Jesus said, as a man looketh upon a woman and lusts after her in his heart, he is guilty of adultery. This is why Jesus said, our battle is right here individually. Our greatest enemy is ourself. And God is trying to teach us to bring every thought into the obedience, captive to the obedience of Christ. This is our warfare. Jesus stands before the ark, making his final intercession for all those for whom still lingers and for those who have ignorantly broken the law of God. How have they broken the law of God, it says? Ignorantly. This atonement is made for the righteous dead as well as for the righteous living. It includes all who died trusting in Christ, but who not having received the light upon God's commandments, have sinned ignorantly in transgressing its precepts. 
This is early writings 254. So there is sin of ignorance that we're not even aware of that Christ intercedes and makes atonement for, not just the dead, but also for us as the living. So what are we held accountable for then? That which we know. The Bible says Jesus has made atonement for all sins of ignorance, but there is no provision made for willful blindness. I want you to go to the Bible to the book of John, and I want you to see for yourself this principle. John 15:22. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they had not had what? Sin, but they now they have no cloak for their sin. In other words, when light is revealed to you, you are held accountable for that light that you come to understand. And then it goes on on commentary, Spirit of Prophecy, on this verse. And it goes through, what about those of us that say, oh no, I don't want to go to that meeting, I don't want to hear that study, I don't want to listen to that person, because then I'm going to be held accountable if I go for the information I learn and receive. Well, brethren, Spirit of Prophecy speaks otherwise. If you choose voluntarily not to go where light is presented simply because you do not want to be held accountable, you will be held accountable as if you were there and heard it and openly chose to reject it. Walk in the light while he is in the light, and ye shall have fellowship one with another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. 1 John 1.7 And the concluding point says, God's eye does not slumber. He knows every sin that is hidden from mortal eye. Listen carefully. The guilty know just what sins to confess that their souls may be clean before God. God, through His Spirit, makes clear to you. And if not, do you know why people come and point out our failures in our life? Our defects? Do you understand why, how it gets to that point? Number one, many times it's because we have not been listening to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to our conscience, speaking to us, and we've been resisting and resisting and resisting and resisting, justifying and justifying and excusing to where God uses some human person and then we don't like that person so we try to find fault of why we don't like the messenger because we don't like the message so we find fault with the messenger to disregard the message and then we continue in our stubbornness and prideful heart and resistance, and we continue, and we discredit, and we reject, and finally we come to the point where circumstances are brought before us face to face. And if God has to open the mouth of a donkey to speak to us, brethren, it's because we have not been listening far before that donkey opened its mouth. If David... King David came to the point where the prophet Nathaniel had to come and speak to him. 
it's because he continued to justify, rationalize, and to think that nobody knew about it. It wasn't that bad. He rationalized his action and sin to where he felt like he did not have to own up to it and confront it. To the point to where God said, no, this will not be no longer. And it goes on and it continues. And the real conflict of our hearts is not between you and I. It's between us and God. And we continue to fight against others whom God, through His Spirit, no matter how humble or what their circumstance may be in life, we reject because we don't like what they're sharing. And so we start finding fault with the messenger to excuse our own carnal heart of the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our life. And this persists and persists until God is trying to lead us, if we continue down this road, the one sin that God cannot forgive, the unpardonable sin that the Bible records, is the sin against the Holy Ghost. And that is why Ananias and Sapphira died. Because they blasphemed and lied against the Holy Ghost. That's why Achan, who was responsible of the sin in the camp that caused others to suffer and die, and the whole camp to suffer, they, he was held responsible with his family because of the sin he chose not openly to acknowledge. It cost him his life. God is long-suffering, 2 Peter 3.9, right? He's not wanting any of us to perish. That's not what he wants. That's not what he's asking for today. He's asking simply for repentance. That all should come to repentance. Jesus is now giving them opportunity to confess, to repent in deep humility and purify their lives by obeying and living out the truth. True confession is always of a specific character and acknowledges peculiar sins. All confession should be definite and to the point, acknowledging the very sins of which you are guilty. That's why Jesus said to the in the book of Hebrews, you hear his voice, harden not your heart, because today is the day of salvation. God doesn't want judgments to fall upon you. God is looking for a heart to see what our sins have done to him at Calvary. Why he suffered for you and I to take the death that we deserve to offer us the life that he deserves. The Bible is imploring us, if you hear his his voice, harden not your heart. I don't know what the Holy Spirit is convicting you during this time, this morning. But it's time we confess and put sin away from our life. It's time we stop making excuses. It's time we stop fighting with one another. It's time that we start identifying, Lord, Search me. Know me. 
Reveal in my heart any wicked way that I'm not seeing right now. Lord, examine me. Help me to examine myself to see if I'm really in the faith. If I'm really abiding in Christ or if I've been just simply abiding in self and professing Christ. Will you join me as we have prayer? Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for your patience with us, your long-suffering kindness and mercy, your gentleness, your compassion. But thou shall no means clear the guilty. It's time, O Lord, we take ownership to our actions. Time, O Lord, that we recognize where we have failed and where we have misrepresented you. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God, but Lord, we are guilty individually of sins we need to make right. We need to be specific. We need to be clear. And we need to be so humble to accept whatever the consequences are. Lord, whatever you want to do with us. That's the full surrender. Where we're not making conditions or demands. I'll do this if we're under this condition, Lord. It is surrender without an if. Without, a, without excuses. Without putting blame on others or situations or circumstances. But saying, it is I, O oh Lord, that have sinned against thee this day that have done wrong before all heaven, to confess our rebellious hearts, which is the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness as idolatry. We are guilty before you this day. Lord, have mercy upon us collectively and individually. And let us not allow this day to pass, this Sabbath, without assurance that every known sin is fully repented of and confessed and made right before Thee. That we may have the blessed assurance that if we were to die tonight, our sins shall be blotted out and resurrection morning shall be a glorious, beautiful moment. Lord, thank You for presenting of the unknown sins for interceding and presenting the merits of Christ on our behalf. Speak to our hearts just now, Lord. Reveal to us that which we need to surrender. And say, yes, Lord, it is I. Wash us. Cleanse us. Create in us clean hearts. And like David, renew a right spirit. Thank you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.